from my mom Jordan. This is Poopity Scoop. I'm Scoopity Poop. Collateral Repair Podcast. I'm Aaron Weintraub. And I'm Jason Wilson. Collateral Repair Podcast is a product of Collateral Repair Project. Collateral Repair Project, or CRP, is a registered 501c3 nonprofit helping vulnerable refugees and needy Jordanians living in Amman, Jordan, through basic needs assistance and trauma relief programming. Today, we're going to talk about employment issues in the refugee community. What happens when you're forced to leave your country and all your connections, personal and professional, are left behind. And in order to provide for yourself in a new country, you have to take up work that doesn't match what you've studied or trained for your entire life. And maybe on top of that, the work that you have to find isn't legal, and the community that you fled to isn't entirely accepting of you being there, oftentimes due to an increase in competition for jobs. Talking with our donors, two of the most common questions that we get uh, when talking about the experience of refugees in Amman uh, are about work. And the first question is always, do people work? Um, and then the second question, when we go into explaining some people work or there's issues or it's not legal to work and all those things, they ask, why is it illegal for people to work? And I'm hoping uh, by listening to this podcast, you will walk away with a greater understanding of the answers to both of those questions and the humans that have to face the consequences of those answers every day. When we look at a lot of the challenges, the legal challenges, the personal challenges, and the, the actions and, and tasks of, of refugees, uh, work is so central to that experience. We're talking about uh, financial stability. If you're able to work, uh, you're able to provide. If you're not able to work, you're relying on others to help you provide for your family. So having financial security, which impacts uh, domestic tranquility, it impacts sort of mental health. We're talking about uh, social cohesion. Um, so this is a really central part of our work at Collateral Repair Project is trying to help build bridges between host communities and the refugee communities because isolation in refugee communities is a huge problem. It's a social problem. Uh, it's, a, it's a resource problem. You don't have your networks of support. Uh, you're in the host community. You're relying on that host community. But like right there in the center of all of that is this question of work. You have to come back to that because a lot of times you'll be talking to folks and they're, they're very tolerant or accepting of of the refugees here, uh, uh, Jordanians will say, you know, we're, we're, they're brothers, they're, they're in the problem, we want to help them, we want to give them a place to be safe. But then there's a lot of people who also say, but it is very challenging because I don't have a job or I'm underemployed or it's very expensive to live here. And I look at someone who's a refugee and I see that they, maybe they have support from international organizations and they have a job. And maybe I don't have a job, and I'm Jordanian, and I don't have any support from international organizations. And so it's very possible to see where, where tensions or bitterness or misconceptions can arise that will create barriers between the host community and the, the, the refugee population. And so work is a central part of that. So today we have two interviews. Our first is with Imad, who left Syria during his last year studying at university. 
Ahmad had to take up several different kinds of jobs in Jordan in the years following. And we're going to follow his story from when he first arrived in Amman and started working illegally to when he began volunteering with CRP to when he finished his degree in Jordan and now when he's just started beginning uh, his own social cohesion program for Jordanian and refugee kids. Our second interview is with Anas Al-Jalabi, uh, who himself is an Iraqi refugee and is an NGO worker and consultant with the United Nations, along with uh, several other humanitarian organizations in Jordan. We're going to talk about the differences Anas sees between Syrian and Iraqi refugee employment issues, as well as areas he sees that require improvement regarding refugee employment, both in Jordan and internationally. A quick note. Uh, that Ennis's views on these improvements are based on his own experiences and opinions, and that CRP is a non-political organization. This podcast seeks to promote refugee voices rather than espouse any one idea or political ideology. So without further ado, here's Ahmad's story. Imad, hey. it's good to see you again. How are you? Good to see you, Aaron. Thanks for sitting down with me. Thank you. Good to see you. So what I was hoping to start with was what you were doing at Syria when the war broke out. I was studying Arabic literature and art. So I studied my first two or three years in university. After that, uh, uh, the university was closed a little bit time and we don't know which time will will reopen and I'll st- I was still three years in the university and I should I was should have just one year to have graduation yeah so when did you leave Syria with your family or did you leave separately yes the good thing I live with my family also I leave Syria with my two parents my father and mother and yeah, we we would just decide we will leave some some months and we will come back. The good thing, we leave Syria at the beginning of the war. There is no uh, big uh, things happened in our city. Just a little bit uh, something like uh, people go away in the street and say we need to start a Nizam or something like that. And we know there is big bad things will happen, mm-hmm. <laughs> so that we decide to leave. You you cross you cross the border in two thousand twelve to Jordan. Yeah. And what what did you start? Where did you start working? At the first, I stay mm, about one month or more than without any work i just was thinking how to come back and how to have my exams in my university in homes mm-hmm. and also i bring my books right to study a little bit and oh, come back to have exams we sh- we have i don't able to come back and uh, there's uh, no home to uh, to stay uh, in the beginning we stay in with the our uh, our members from our, our big family uh, we stay 
around one week on them. After that, we should have a home. We should to rent a house. So we rent one and I start looking uh, for any work. Mm -hmm. And I start working on Nat's uh, shop. Al-Shab? Yeah. yeah. Al-Shab, <laughs> I tell you. I'll tell you. So I still working one year. I worked without any experience in that. Mm -hmm. Just uh, I start working, and I I ha I was have had a good experience. Mm -hmm. That's good. So uh, yeah, I still working one year, and in that year, uh, I was I wasn't think with anything. Just uh, go to work and uh, got money to my family and still waiting what will happen in Syria and when we will come back. So it was a hard time to just to live without hope. Were you working there legally? No. Because at the beginning, I don't know what's the laws in Jordan. I don't know if this work is legally or illegal. But I just want to work and there's something happened and some, some day I, I was working and there is uh, two guys go inside the store and say, where's your ID? And I, I say, I don't have, I'm Syrian, so... He say, okay, come with me. We will go to police station. Why? What will happen? <laughs> Were you scared? <laughs> a little bit, but yeah, I know it's not a big thing. I didn't make any wrong, big wrong thing. Mm -hmm. I just working. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it was... So yeah. you go to the police station. Yeah, but it was easy day. I just stay a few hours uh, and sign a paper to to stay without work illegal without uh, illegal work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, something like uh, it was a it was a piece of paper that made you promise yeah. you wouldn't work illegally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it is. How do you find? But yeah. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. I, yeah, after I signed that, I returned to my work. Right. <laughs> well, you have to work. How did you... I have to work? Yeah. <laughs> There's no legal work for me mm -hmm. in that time, and I should have any work. So, um, I know it's illegal, but it it's the the one way for me to live. What is the uh, what is the process of, of getting uh, legal work? If you want to work legally, there's a lot of laws and specific things, and you should work specific works like uh, not all of yani not you shouldn't work anything legally. There is uh, specific things you you will be able to work mm -hmm. legally and you should pay 400 JDs. So you have to pay rent. Yeah. You have to take care of your parents and then you have to pay 400 a year. 
Yeah, if you want to work legally. Legally. Also, uh, the rent is monthly. It, it should be about at least 200 mm-hmm. JDs. So uh, there is uh, a lot of things you should pay and uh, there is not a lot of opportunities you have. So after you left, uh, you, you worked at al Shab about a year. Yeah. And then you moved to... After that, I tried to look about something uh, helped me to develop myself, de- develop my, spe- my skills. Because I left my university, I don't have graduation mm-hmm. and uh, I should have something to be help me to complete my life. It's not good to be just a sailor and just uh, have your money at the last of every month. Mm-hmm. So I start develop my skills with uh, mobile softwares uh, and try to solve some technically process technically problems in my home on my own laptop <laughs> basically the laptop was my dream <laughs> to have a laptop when I live in Syria uh, I just uh, enter the university and I say to my parents, I want to have my own laptop. I should have a computer. It was very useful for me. And But they say it's expensive and we can't mm-hmm. do that. And when I come to Jordan and start working, I have some monies and I start to save some of them. Uh, after one year, I have a enough money to buy a laptop. <laughs> a laptop. Yeah. So when I bought a, when I buy the laptop, uh, I start uh, to develop my skills, and I start to to learn something about how to solve mobile problems, problems, and how to. Uh, to do something like change OS and solve technical problems and I did some of that. After that, I decided to look about something, give give me money from that. Mm -hmm. So I start to look about my uh, neighborhood uh, mobile shops and I tell them I can do something like that and like that and like that and when you have problem you can call me and some of them was connect with me and I start working on that process. So you worked at several different stores? Yeah. Were you still working illegally at that time? Yeah, it's still illegally but no, no, I think it's it's legal to work uh, your personal own work in, in, on home. So I just do any, uh, not stay on specific place or specific store, just uh, move from one to another one and have a phones and 
do something on my home just so you can work for five or six different places yeah and that's that's allowed yeah it's allowed because all of them was uh, very close to me and uh, after that I have some of known on my work and everyone uh, know who's Imad and what they are doing and when something happened with him or problem he he can't or one of them have a problem he can't solve it just call Imad and hey I have something like that and I'll come and have some money so was the money better uh, with uh, the phone store or was it no it's not better it's a little bit less than what I have on not store but it's better for me it's mm-hmm. uh, i will uh, learning something every day right. also uh, it's uh, best for me to have time to m- meet my family and see my friends mm-hmm. it's much easier for me so how did you <laughs> now you work in 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 child development <laughs> how how did you go from working with like IT like mobile phones and stuff like that to working with kids let me tell you something uh, every year in in the life have new things new ideas and new hope and a new dream when I was in university in Syria I have different dream what when I come to Jordan and when I work in work at mobile repairs and also I was <laughs> different dream and now also I have different dream and different hope and different things I learn every day the most important things to be good with yourself and to be kindness with others so during my work on mobiles I was looking about something to do to help my community mm-hmm. so I start to work on social media on news Facebook page relation related with the evaluation in revaluation in Syria and start looking uh, for uh, NGOs work with refugees and I found care organization international and start uh, volunteering with him I found something like a scholarship uh, there's an NGO uh, give me some money and I have to pay and complete uh, some of money from from me to complete my study and I did that and I registered in Zaqa University and I studied two years and I have graduation. Describe to me uh, any tension that you've gotten or, or heard about between sort of the refugee community and the Jordanian community regarding employment. Unfortunately, there is tension between Jordanian between, and uh, 
Syrian and Iraqian and other nationalities there is some of uh, fight about uh, work there is some cases from Jordanian when they say when they see refugees uh, have money from UHCR and they say we are also poor we we don't have anyone to give us money and you got you come to our country and you also have money to to eat by free and it's good to to involve all of community member mm -hmm. in the same programs in the same process i think there is uh, there's a good uh, a good the chance for ngos to to do that let's talk about crp when did you first uh uh when did you first hear about crp the first thing i was looking about English classes and there is a good uh, good idea to have uh, English classes near my home in CRP and I start come I think just one time per week so in that year I was still in the university and I was learn something about how to make conversation in English. And then uh, you started working with like Supergirls eventually. After I have graduation, I'm looking to actually volunteering at CRP. Mm -hmm. I didn't think about anything else. I just was want to volunteer and help kids. Uh, um, also got some experience for me after I have uh, graduation. So I start as volunteer, uh, worked with kids uh, during Supergirls program. After, How I How did think you like it? It was very good to find a place to, uh, to help uh, others, help your community. At the same time, develop your skills, have a new experience. Mm -hmm. In the first, I didn't have much experience to do all of things running now. Yeah. <laughs> but there is step by step and I still, until now, learn and learn everything I have. Every day I have things to learn. So I hear that you have a, a new project starting up at CRP. Yes, yeah. actually I have a fellowship from Bluesome Hill NGO organization. So this new program, uh, it will be about uh, sport. It uh, will for refugees and Jordanian. The main thing we're looking for to make social cohesion between refugees and Jordanian and uh, local community. So we're looking to make a new community from all of these nationalities are living with in the same place. Uh, also, we, we, know, we all know that bullying uh, was in the schools and there is no friendship 
between refugees and Jordanians. Also, not there is not no time to meet because uh, uh, refugee schools have uh, different sh shifts from mm -hmm. Jordanian school, and there is not good relationship between them. And when we do a program like that, it's a good uh, chance for them to meet and have a good time with uh, with each other and have good relationships, good friendships from them. That's what we're looking for. Imad, thanks so much for coming and talking with me. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you for you. Thank you for CRP. All right. Take care. Thanks. Thank you, Imad. And now, Enes. Ennis, how are you? I'm doing very well, thanks. It's good to see you. It's good, lovely to see you again, actually. I haven't seen you in a, in a while. Yeah, I've been busy. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. All right, so <laughs> why don't we start with you uh, talking about you coming with your family to Jordan, mm -hmm. and um, how did your family manage to provide for themselves uh, once, you, once you came over here? Yeah, um, so I was born in Mosul, um, actually in northern Iraq, and um, I grew up in Baghdad uh, because of my uh, father's work, and in, in 2003 when, when the war took place, uh, we stayed there for um, almost four years um, in Baghdad. Um, eventually things got really um, out of hand. Uh, 2016 was, uh, was a, one of the bloodiest year um, in the history of Iraq. There was a lot of sectarian violence and, and kidnapping and... and um, kind of the uh, you know guerrilla war uh, within the militias so it was very very unsafe for civilians at that time and um, that was when we made the decision to uh, come to Jordan uh, there were some legal complications at the time um, as um, Iraqi refugees in, in Jordan uh, getting asylum getting uh, residency permits and getting the paperwork that uh, that was quite a challenge. And the Jordanian economy also functions fundamentally very differently from the Iraqi economy. True. So um, um, Iraq, before 2003, we were uh, kind of uh, best buddies with, uh, with the Soviet Union. So uh, officially, Iraq was a, a communist country. Um, I remember um, um, my, my father was working at, uh, at the Central Bank of Iraq, and uh, that was supposedly very good um, salaries there. Um, so his entire income was less than um, 100 US dollar um, a month. And Jordan was uh, a very kind of American capitalist system where you had to pay for, for everything. So having that shift in, um, in, in the environment, in, in the economical situation of the country, uh, within one day, you know, we, ha we were uh, the government was paying for everything in Iraq. We came here, and we had to pay for everything. So that was a dramatic, um, a dramatic shift, and uh, it took us some time to adapt. Uh, of course, we had to find different jobs. We had to um, kind of uh, adopt our lifestyle. Uh, we had to sell um, some of our assets um, in order to um, survive the first uh, few years in, in Jordan. Uh, but then, thankfully, um, my dad managed to um, find uh, an opportunity with uh, with an Iraqi bank, and um, I managed to also continue my education and, and find work here. So uh, things were difficult. I, I do believe um, I got lucky, um, but unfortunately, that was not the case uh, for many of my peers. 
So our, our first interview, Ahmad, uh, is originally from Holmes. Uh, and so I was wondering if you could talk about some of the differences uh, between legal differences and social differences between uh, Iraqi and Syrian refugees that come to Jordan. Sure. Um, so there was definitely some, some differences um, and some similarities. So in, in every country, in every um, situation throughout the history um, after uh, World War II, when um, a migration kind of wave comes to a country, the, the people of that country usually um, are a little bit, you know, unacceptable or to them, or you know, they, they're a little bit closed um, for for the migrants. And then, you know, after a few years, they they realize that okay, I guess this is happening, so um, they start being more acceptable, more open. So I think it's it's very normal it's a normal human behavior to uh, be protective and then once you trust that those people um, who are just you know like you and me um, you get to be more open and, and feel more safe uh, living with them that's on a, a social level uh, but on a, a legal level for example starting a business uh, for Iraqis uh, is, is different fundamentally from a Syrian trying to open a business yeah so um, legally um, it is it used to be the same. Um, now there's more um, support and initiatives to kind of help the, the Syrian community in, in Jordan, which is the largest migration um, community in Jordan. We're talking about 1.4 million Syrians um, in Jordan, um, um, estimated by the government. Only 600,000 of them are registered with the UNHCR. So there was a lot of support from the European Union, from um, donors and, and fundraisers to work alongside the Jordanian government to um, create initiatives and, and job opportunities and uh, uh, issue working permits uh, for the Syrians. Um, unfortunately, that didn't happen to a lot of the other um, minority um, refugees in Jordan, such as the Iraqi, the Sudanese, or, or from you know people from Yemen or Libya. Um, there's, um, you know, personally, I do believe the, the media played a huge role. Um, the migration to Europe uh, by the Syrian community also played a role that um, these initiatives should only go to a certain uh, type of refugees. Would you say there's some amount of social tension between the different refugee communities as well as the Jordanian community because of this? I, I mean, a little bit. Um, for, you know, each community that came to Jordan was fundamentally different culturally, um, also economically. So for most of the Iraqis that came to Jordan uh, because of some certain policies, uh, most of the middle-class Iraqis um, actually went to Syria and, and uh, Egypt. Um, the kind of elite or uh, a little bit uh, rich Iraqis um, ended up coming to Jordan because of the high cost of, of living. Um, at that time, Amman was the, the most expensive Arab city um, in the Middle East. Um, um, Iraq was pretty much, again, a, a socialist state, so um, pretty much everything was paid off by the government in terms of um, the health um, industry and, and the educational industry. Um, so not many people who are workers came to Jordan. Um, in the Syrian situation, that was quite the opposite, where you have large amount of um, young uh, workers coming to Jordan, so they had to compete uh, with a relatively small economy in Jordan with local um, job seekers as well. So there was some tensions economically with the Syrian community that did not happen with, with the Iraqi community back then. Let's talk about the work you do now, uh, which focuses a lot on uh, providing a, 
a community of people who, who, who may not be able to use uh, their very technical skills uh, that they could use in their old community and being able to apply them in a way that can help d develop the economy of their new community. Th that is very true. So um, throughout the last few years, um, actually throughout the last decade, um, as, a, as a refugee myself um, in the beginning, and um, I've seen that story happens over and over again, um, all the way from um, the U.S. to Europe to, to the Middle East. Um, uh, my own, um, some of my own family members um, who, um, who were doctors and, and engineers um, had to work uh, minimum wage jobs to make ends meet um, for, uh, for the duration um, of transition between these communities. Um, it was a huge problem um, for the brain deficit of, of the Middle Eastern um, experts and, and uh, subject matter experts generally uh, from from Syria and Iraq, especially where you had most of the the teachers, uh, professors, and, and doctors and engineers, um, you know, uh, are not being able to provide their knowledge and apply their uh, expertise uh, in the new communities. Um, unfortunately, for Arab countries that t were you know taking migrants. Um, those experts were not a priority to them. Uh, unlike some other Western countries like um, Canada and, and Australia, where um, part of your asylum um, points or program, um, they take into account um, your background, your expertise, and, and how much of a useful uh, contribution you will have to, to the new community. Most of the people I know, they had to, um, yeah, they had to work. In, in minimum wage jobs, um, eventually either waiting for asylum uh, applications, waiting for um, you know their application to be approved or to go to another country or to find work um, elsewhere. But the, the problem was not um, from the ecosystem or, or the, the economy, but it was more uh, legal. So uh, I know a few doctors that are working here illegally with clinics, um, a few engineers, a few um, uh, technical people. Um, the companies and small businesses have no problem employing these experts, but having the permits, having the, the paperwork, and, and having the, uh, you know, all the complications to get a non, uh, to get a foreigner to uh, work in your company was a hassle uh, throughout the Middle East. So with regards to working illegally, uh, exploitation of workers is one of the biggest issues in the refugee community. So what kinds of safety nets do you think could be helpful uh, to protecting uh, illegal refugee workers? And, and what, if anything, have you seen change uh, since you started working? Yeah, so th that is true. Um, unfortunately, when um, the first um, Syrian migration wave came to Jordan, most of them were, were middle class. They were living off their salaries and then they couldn't afford to stay um, laid off for, for a long time. And they had to find work one way or another and they had to settle for um, less than minimum wage. And, um, you know, I've, um, I remember one um, example that really um, shook me where uh, there were four Syrian brothers. Um, they were all engineers and business uh, men in, in, in Syria. And uh, here they ended up working in a, in a, in a factory with um, around $200 a month salary. And uh, there was four brothers. The combined salary of three of them, they used to pay it for rent. And then the last brother's salary, that was uh, mainly for, for food and water. Um, but that didn't stop them from working 
um, legally in Jordan, Syrians are, they're not, not allowed to work, but it's very difficult for them to uh, work legally. But technically, the government um, numbers uh, are something like 50% of refugees are unemployed, uh, but they've only issued working permits to um, around 60,000 out of a million and a half. Um, personally, throughout my work um, in the NGO and in, in both refugee camps uh, in Jordan, I haven't met a single Syrian uh, in the working age between 18 and, and you know up to 50 um, who did not work one way or another, um, whether it was legally and legally. Um, so these people will work. You know, um, they don't really have a choice. Um, unfortunately, uh, yes, a lot of them are exploited. A lot of them are underpaid, um, and they're having all of this hatred. Uh, towards them from local host communities uh, and, and their, you know, whether it was in, in countries in, in the Middle East or in Europe. Um, but it was this blame that you're blaming a refugee that they're working to support themselves and, and their families with half the salary that um, a local residents will make. Um, but, you know, um, they're not blaming the business owners who are um, employing refugees at, uh, and underpay them and, and using them and exploiting them. Uh, there was a, a lot of um, issues regarding um, overwork, regarding um, children's um, working, uh, regarding sexual harassment. Um, uh, the, the United Nations tried to uh, work with, alongside the Jordanians to limit these uh, incidents. They uh, started several programs uh, for work opportunities provided by uh, the United Nations within the camps and, and outside the camps. Uh, they're trying to focus on certain industries like agriculture, manufacturing, and, and food industry. We haven't completely eliminated the problem, but I do believe uh, generally we're going to a better place regarding this. Um, uh, the issue we're facing here is that migrants will work one way or another, whether we make it legal for them or not. For a migrant, they only have two choices. They either work and survive, or they either you know, get on a boat to Europe. And, and Europeans um, understand that. And, and recently, in the last few years, we're seeing a lot of support to Jordan and to other uh, surrounding countries, to Syria, uh, to fund programs and uh, employment programs, trainings, and, and providing opportunities uh, to the Syrians. So in the future, what kinds of uh, ways do you think refugee work, refugee employment uh, can be destigmatized in Jordan and uh, elsewhere in the world? So, um, personally, I, I do have a small, like a very, very short answer to this, which is um, inclusion. Um, so, uh, one of the, the United Nations can't solve this by itself. Uh, there's a nice quote by the uh, the second um, secretary general uh, of the UN, where he said, um, the United Nation was not created to take mankind into heaven, but to save it from hell. Uh, most of the things that um, at least the UN in the Middle East is, is focusing on is um, uh, starvation, safety, migration, uh, re you know, uh, finding a, a place to live. Um, so these are relatively higher priority problems than um, education um, and, and finding opportunities. So right now, um, it's, been, it's been 
you know, seven or eight years uh, for, for the Syrian conflict that's longer than uh, World War II. And, and we have a population of Syrians who've been in Jordan, you know, for that period. And now uh, they already have these necessi necessities uh, figured out, but now they're waiting for the international community to figure out employment, to figure out um, a way to include them in the community. And um, and, and I want to also highlight the difference between um, diversity and inclusion. So um, um, uh, one of my friends puts it um, in a nice way, and it goes like, diversity is being invited to the party. Inclusion is being asked to the dance floor. Um, I've seen so many organizations, so many embassies. Um, I, I don't want to name them, but uh, there was one embassy um, and I was working with the, with the Syria office of that embassy. Um, and guess how many Syrians work in the Syria office in that embassy? One. And he was like a, a, you know, a 22 year old kid who was just doing communications and, and emails. So inclusion is a, is a huge role that we need to understand as, um, as an international community wanting to solve migration, we need to talk to the um, refugees. I definitely see that there's an opportunity, especially for Jordan, um, you know, where the unemployment rate right now is around 18%, and it's, it's a little bit more than 27% for females. So we need to figure out a way um, to include Syrians in the workforce, um, especially that, you know, they're working whether we allow them or not, um, might as well, you know, invite them to the table, figure out a way, um, you know, figure out a win-win situation for, for everyone. And final question, what kind of legal issues with employment in Jordan would you like to see change in the future alongside sort of the, the social aspect, the destigmatizing of refugee work? So the main issue is um, being able to legally work, but if we're just going to keep allowing the unregulated market to grow, um, nobody will be able to pay taxes. So actually there was a time um, that I was working without a permit two years ago and I, was, I still paid around 10% taxes. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was very funny where I was, I was telling the guy, I, I don't have a working permit. He said, yes, I know, but you know, we can't stop you from working, but please keep paying taxes, even if, if it was like illegally. Um, so generally we need to figure out a way um, to include Syrians in the economy uh, the Jordanian economy needs to grow. Um, there's a lot of experts uh, that I've met from Jordan um, and, and Syria and Iraq that worked, you know, with all the way from NASA to the, in the West with the U.S. and with universities uh, and research centers in Japan all the way to the East. Uh, so it's clear that the experts and, and the knowledge and the know-how is here, but we just need a legal work frame from the United Nations from uh, local governments and host communities, we need to sit down together and figure out a way that we can all benefit from this. Um, it, it was very useful for Jordanians to benefit from uh, refugee knowledge and, and expertise. And it was very, very vital for refugees to use the facilities and, and uh, the economy of the host community to help um, the, the community grow and help uh, the refugee community as well. Um, and th there was also another issue where a lot of people are actually um, are angry for uh, their local governments and, and 
municipalities uh, supporting and, and spending huge amount of money for, for migrants, where in fact most of the research that um, I was exposed to in the last few years uh, showed that uh, at least in Europe for every euro that was spent on a refugee integration program or a language program or um, work um, related uh, trainings, uh, that one euro came back uh, to the government after a few years as 1.5 euro. So actually taxpayers made profit out of their governments uh, supporting migrants. In the US, it was a little bit longer where the first generation of migrant was um, a little bit costly, but the ROI or, or the return on investment for the second generation of uh, migrants in the US were uh, more productive, they generated more revenue, they uh, paid more taxes. So no government so far have lost money uh, in the long term investing in, in refugees. And I think as Arab nations and as Middle Easterns, um, we need to keep in mind the, the long term and not only focuses on, on short term gains. Anas, thanks so much for sitting down with me. Thank you. Thanks a lot for this opportunity as well. Thank you so much uh, to both of our interviewees for sitting down with us. Uh, so, Jason, what's been going on at CRP recently? Well, we have two sort of major announcements of uh, things that are going on. First off, the new, our new center downtown has officially opened. You might have seen, yeah, you might have seen our uh, kickoff Facebook Live with our our celebration and everything like that. If you didn't check out our Facebook page, it'll give you a sense of the space and sort of uh, what's happening there. Uh, we've started registrations uh, for people to receive emergency assistance, and uh, and yeah, everything seems to be going well. We. Before the center opened, our whole leadership team sat down and we, we brainstormed doomsday scenarios. And I'm happy to report that uh, none of the things that we were secretly afraid of happening have happened. So, so far, so good. <laughs> the, the, the center is beautiful. Uh, we're getting people in. Our staff is well-trained and they're, and they're really excited to be there. So I'm really excited that that's happening. The other thing that's going on in my world particularly is we're starting, and in, in the world at the Hashimi Center, is we're starting to gather stories and uh, put together things for our winter fundraising campaign. So that's going to be coming up in about a month. After you hear this, uh, we're going to be doing some nice promotions around Giving Tuesday, and, and we're, we've got a lot of really good energy and, and are really looking forward to sharing these stories uh, with you. It's a great opportunity for us to showcase these stories, and it's a great opportunity for you guys to uh, support CRP, which we are so, so grateful that you do. Uh, other than that, that's, that's all I have for now. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end of this podcast. Uh, if you have any questions for us that you'd like to have on the air, please send an uh, email to... Uh, podcast at collateralrepairproject.org. And if you'd like to help us out in another way, please rate us on iTunes. It actually really matters uh, in terms of getting us exposure to new people. And uh, tell your friends about us, uh, about us, about this podcast, uh, and about what you learned today. Thank you. <laughs>